The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. She said, you know, I think we should really just be focusing on these statutory factors on, on whether or not I should continue this trial. Those are things like whether or not the case has uh, multiple defendants, whether or not novel issues of law have been raised, you know, the complex general nature and complexity of the case. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 19th, 2023. It was a heck of a day in the legal travails of Donald Trump. We awoke this morning to news from the former president himself that he had received another target letter from special counsel Jack Smith, this time from the January 6th grand jury. An indictment seems to be imminent. Our own Anna Bauer spent the day in federal court in Fort Pierce where Judge Eileen Cannon was hearing the first major status conference of the Mar-a-Lago case. And just as she was coming out of court, the Attorney General of Michigan announced that she had brought cases against several fake electors from the 2020 election in that state. We gathered in the virtual jungle studio for a live taping of the Lawfare podcast to go over it all. What do we know about the apparently forthcoming new case against Donald Trump? What do we know about the fake electors case in Michigan? And what happened in the courtroom when Judge Cannon faced her first hearing as presiding judge in the Mar-a-Lago case? It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 19th, a big day in Trump accountability. Roger, I want to start with you. The first information we had this morning that anything was up was, of course, from Donald Trump himself. He truthed, uh, or as my friend Tim Miller likes to say, he bleated that he had received a target letter from the January 6th grand jury as distinct from the Mar-a-Lago grand jury. What do we know and uh, what do we infer about what is going on in the January 6th case? We mainly know what Trump told us, which is uh, that on Sunday, apparently, he got the target letter. He seemed disappointed by this news. And they offered, uh, they, uh, he has the opportunity to go before the grand jury They'll keep that opportunity open for four days. And so if those are four calendar days, that would mean uh, till Thursday. And uh, 
then they would be free to make a decision. Obviously, most people that receive target letters don't go before the grand jury. And most people that get target letters are eventually indicted, but neither of those things has to be true. So that's where we are. Yeah. So, Anna, I'm going to come to you for a full debrief on the hearing in Florida today. But for now, um, let's do this part excerpted. Was there any discussion of the target letter at today's hearing? And what did we learn from Trump's lawyers as opposed to or the prosecutors or from Trump rather than from Trump himself? Uh, so we learned that uh, there, for, the former president's attorneys confirmed that there was a target letter that was indeed um, sent to Trump. We learned that uh, we didn't learn much about that target letter other than its existence. But Trump's attorneys did, however, you know, use the existence of that target letter and potential charges in the January 6th case as a kind of reason to add to why Judge Cannon should set a a trial date sometime in the distance after the 2024 election, as opposed to, you know, the the requested trial date by the government of December 11th. So, uh, you know, we didn't learn much in that hearing other than its existence was confirmed. And and the fact that uh, Trump's counsel seemed to believe that charges are potentially forthcoming in that case. And, you know, that that they believe that's another reason to put off the scheduling of a trial. All right. So we know now, not just from Trump, but also from his lawyers in court that a target letter really did issue. Roger, do we don't have any reason to disbelieve other than that the words were said by Donald Trump, that they gave him four days to come in, right? I don't. I, 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 yeah, I don't uh, have any reason to doubt that. So I'm curious how you both interpret the following. I, I read it as follows. Tom Wyndham, one of the chief prosecutors, was personally in the grand jury a fair bit last week, spent some quality time with the grand jury, I assume that was the presentation of the case. They then did not hold a vote, but extended the invitation to Trump in the form of a target letter. The grand jury meets on Thursday, so he does not come in before then by Thursday. I assume they will be in a position to vote and we could have an indictment as early as the end of this week, although it would be under seal pending a, a negotiated presentation uh, and arraignment of Trump. Does that sound uh, obviously wrong, plausible, or obviously right to you guys? Roger first. I'm afraid I just don't know enough about their procedures and how they normally do these things. Also, I, I was under the impression that this grand jury was meeting about three times a week, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. And so I don't know if it, if they're giving him four days, what that means. If they Does would, it mean through Thursday or does it mean until Thursday? Or does it mean four grand jury days in which it would, oh, you would get? Or four business days, yes, in which exactly. case the Sunday doesn't count. Yeah. And you would get the next Tuesday as well. 
but I, I just don't know enough, but it, it sounds like it's pretty imminent. What do you think, Anna? Can we, can we read the tea leaves for when this is coming? I mean, I, I certainly, I don't know. Um, I, I, I do think that it might be relevant that, you know, we have Fonnie Willis's expected indictments starting on July 31st. And, you know, potentially that is a kind of deadline that the special counsel has set for himself in terms of, you know, getting potential federal indictments out first related to January 6th. So I'm 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 with Roger and that I'm not really sure how much we can really read the tea leaves here, but I I think based on this target letter going out uh last night and and these uh expected indictments out of Fulton County, I I would say that sometime before July 31st I would expect to see indictments related to January 6th. Okay, you're both being unconscionably responsible. I'm going to end that streak. The indictment is happening Thursday. It will be under seal. Trump will blow the seal on Friday and there will it will become public Friday late afternoon. That is I am so confident of that I'm saying here now Friday afternoon we're going to have a lawfare live. Um, so just pencil it into your calendar. All right, Anna, the first important question. Uh, what number in line was Lawfare this time at the courthouse? I am pleased to report that we have not been dethroned. Uh, we remain undefeated in standing in line and starting the media line. Um, I arrived before uh, the sun came up this morning. For a 2 p.m. hearing? For a 2 p.m. hearing, I will say that uh, Alan uh, Fuhrer from uh, the New York Times he almost beat us out, uh, but uh, did not quite do so. So he he arrived like just a few minutes after me. So I, I we remain undefeated, and who knows uh, which media outlet will eventually take the crown. But um, I will say that the the clerk mentioned to me as we were going in that that lawfare must be an extremely competitive media outlet because we always arrive first. So. <laughs> Well, that is the first time we have ever been described as that. Um, all right. Another preliminary before we get to the hearing. This was at a different courthouse. Tell us about the U.S. federal courthouse at Fort Pierce and how much you hate it with every fiber of your being. So, look, I, I it's going to be very... Um, disappointing to me if Judge Cannon decides to eventually have this trial here for a few reasons. One is that it's just logistically much more difficult to get to uh, for reporters, for law enforcement, for anyone who's traveling out here. But it, it's not just that, you know, the courthouse at Fort Pierce, it's actually quite new. It's quite large. It's very, you know, it, it's very modern and, and pretty. But the courtrooms, we were in the biggest courtroom that there is, and it only has two rows of seats for members of the public and the media. You know, we were told going in that there'd only be 10 to 15 seats for, for members of the media. Ultimately, I think we got maybe something like 30 people in there. Um, but it, it was the smallest gallery for audiences that I have ever seen in a courthouse. Um 
So I really think that the public and media access problems there um, will be significant if if Judge Cannon decides to hold it there. Um, so, you know, it's there's a, a lack of hotels in the area, a lack of taxis and transportation. So it really will cause some logistical problems for people who want to make sure the public knows what's going on about, you know, what's happening with this trial against the presidential Republican nominee or presumptive nominee. All right. So we don't like the courthouse. You got there, but you 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 kept our streak of being first in line. Let's talk about the hearing. What time did it get started? And what were the major, we're going to talk about each of them in particular, but what were the major headings of the issues that it covered? Right. So the hearing started at 2 p.m. this afternoon. One of the things that we were looking for in terms of what might happen um, is just kind of getting a general sense of how Judge Eileen Cannon will uh, approach this case. Uh, this is her her first time handling the case as the presiding judge. It also is the first time that she has been involved in in the case since she dealt with the related civil matter back in uh, August at a hearing about whether or not to appoint a special master in the case. Um, so I think that that was kind of at the top of everyone's mind. In terms of the substance of what the hearing covered, there were two legal issues here. So the first was a motion to continue the trial that Judge Cannon initially set for this August. The government filed a motion a few weeks ago suggesting a, a new trial schedule and a new trial date for December 11th. In reply, uh, Trump's team suggested we shouldn't even set a trial date. Uh, it should be indefinitely delayed. They seem to suggest that it, it should certainly be put off after the 2024 election. So that was the first thing that they we kind of had a battle over is, you know, whether or not this trial date should be set and, and if so, when. And then the second uh, issue here is uh, involved a motion for a protective order regarding classified information. That's an, uh, a motion that the Department of Justice filed yesterday. And that kind of just sets the ground rules for, you know, how discovery and evidence will be handled regarding classified information pursuant to the Classified Information Procedures Act. So the government filed this yesterday and, and Judge Cannon kind of uh, wanted to ask whether or not there was meaningful conversation before that motion was filed between the defense attorneys and the government because the local rules require a meaningful conferral before, you know, a motion is ripe um, or like ready to be ruled on or, or discussed. Ultimately, that ended up being a smaller part of the hearing. Uh, I'll go ahead and say before we get into the motion for continuance part that Judge Cannon did rule that uh, she would dismiss the government's motion for a protective order without prejudice, meaning that they can refile it. The reason being that she, in her view, the government did not meaningfully confer with defense attorneys before filing that motion. It, she noted that the government 
tried to speak with the defense attorneys on a Friday, but then filed on a Monday. So she kind of directed them to, you know, try again to, to discuss. And then, you know, the, the government can get a second bite of the apple by refiling that motion. All right. So let's talk about each of those three issues in turn. The first is Judge Cannon herself. You've watched, you watched her in the disaster of a hearing that led to her first disaster of a ruling that the 11th Circuit reversed. Did she seem like the same uh, out of control menace that she was in that environment? Or did she seem chastened? Or did she seem like she'd turned a new leaf? What was your basic impression? Or is there just not enough data to evaluate her at this point? What's the early word from Anna Bauer on the rehabilitation of Judge Aileen Cannon? So I think it's hard to say at this point, but I, I will say that something I noted is, uh, you know, for background, if, if folks recall, one of the things that was really striking about Judge Cannon's order in, in appointing a special master is that she did focus on, you know, the uh, Trump status as, you know, a former president and and some of the, you know, reputational harm that he might suffer or, um, you know, other kind of political harm and that kind of thing. She really focused on his status as a person who's a former president who might be, you know, running for president and and that kind of thing. But here in this hearing, when uh, Trump's attorneys urged her to consider his identity as, you know, a Republican presidential frontrunner. She kind of seemed skeptical of 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 that, and she resisted their urges to, you know, do so. Um, she said, you know, I think we should really just be focusing on these statutory factors on on whether or not I should continue this trial. Those are things like whether or not the case has. Uh, multiple defendants, whether or not novel issues of law have been raised, you know, the complex general nature and complexity of the case. So she very much wanted to redirect the conversation to those factors. With that said, she also expressed a lot of skepticism towards the government about, uh, you know, whether they had put forward a realistic trial date. I think that some of her questions actually are fair ones in that, you know, she she mentioned um, that she's not aware of any case involving classified information that has gone to trial within six months, much less, you know, a year. Um, The government was able to point to a case called Mallory um, that went to trial in 11 months. Wait, we're going to get to the merits of the issues discussed in a moment. But basically, to put to put it simply, you didn't detect anything like when when you came out of that first hearing a year ago, you were pretty rocked by her behavior. You didn't detect anything abnormal or, you know, any questions that you thought were inappropriate or she didn't announce as she did in the special master hearing, yeah, I'm inclined to go this way. She didn't show any evident bias in this hearing that you could see. Not that I can see. Um, you know, she was very tough on the government attorneys. 
um, maybe more so than than uh, most federal judges would be. But, you know, I don't know that that is something that, you know, being tough on the government when they make representations about, you know, whether or not they produce discovery and and, you know, uh, considering being very thorough about what her decision should be. I don't know that that's necessarily a, a bad thing. I just didn't get a good sense. It seemed like she was very much peppering both sides with tough questions. So, you know, it's very hard for me to tell at this point uh, whether or not she's changed her tune since the 11th Circuit ruling. I'm still willing to kind of wait and see, though I I will say that, you know, it it did seem to me having seen judges uh, interact with DOJ attorneys, it it did seem to me that she was quite tough on them. But it was kind of, you know, she also had uh, difficult questions that uh, for Trump's team as well. All right. So let's talk about the two issues one by one. The uh, the first and simpler one is this question of the protective order for purposes of SIPA. For those who are not SIPA uh, nerds, let me just give the briefest summary of this. So you have a whole lot of pretrial litigation. This is the reason why this trial will not be held in December that all require uh, going through and figuring out how to not present classified material in open court, how you can substitute it with other things, what you can show the jury that the rest of the world can't see, how you can get people to testify about it. All of that needs to be litigated, and the president's lawyers need to be given I think the technical term is a veritable shitload of classified discovery, all of which has to not be disclosed to other people, including the president, who is no longer cleared to receive classified information. All of that requires a protective order. The government submitted a proposed protective order on Monday, and as Anna reports, she rejected it today. But my impression is that's a kind of formal thing. She didn't have any objections to it. She just wants the government to consult with the defense. Is that right? Or is there more to it than that? That's right. Um, She also did have some questions about the protective order that might be the uh, fodder for, you know, future litigation or disagreement. Um, she asked whether the government's protective order would mean that defendants could potentially not have access to some of the classified evidence against them. Um, so that could be something that concerns her in the future and, and also is a likely basis for uh, defense objections going forward. Although that is what SEPA is designed to ameliorate, right? I mean, if you're going to, the party that wants to use the classified evidence has to come forward and announce it, and then they have to figure out how to handle it. I don't think that's a ripe issue until there is a moment where you're going to present something to a jury that the defense has to have an opportunity to respond to, right? Right. And and I I will also say that the government represented that as far as former President Trump goes, they said that they 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 potentially would be willing to 
you know, provide access or, or, or have some kind of agreement for him having access to classified information in order to assist his counsel in his defense. Um, but it seemed to be the case that uh, that same extension of, you know, viewing the evidence would, would maybe not apply to Nauta. So that's something to watch out for. It's it basically until the government confers with defense counsel and, and then refiles, um, you know, there likely will be some kind of potential litigation in the future. But for now, um, it's just a matter of, you know, the government needing to, to refile. So it's not as though she, you know, just rejected it outright for any substantive reason. It, it was that kind of formal reason regarding the local rule around conferring. Okay. And do we know if the defense has all, defense lawyers have all submitted their uh, SF-86 paperwork for classified information access or is, or, I mean, do we even have cleared defense lawyers at this point? So my understanding as of today is that all of the defense counsel who have made notices of appearance um, are, have uh, filed the notices of compliance uh, it, saying that they, you know, have completed all their applicant tasks. Woodward announced in court today that he was notified, I believe it was today, that he received interim clearance. I, I, Blanche and Kais, I believe as well. I, I can't recall if Kais said this in court, but I do know that um, Blanche also noted that he has received interim clearance. So I, again, not sure what the status is of Sasha Dadan, who I, I think that's how you pronounce her name. Hopefully it is. Um, but she was just recently joined uh, Nauda's team. And, and so I'm not sure what the interim clearance status is with her. But so, you know, that will be something to note about what was revealed today in, in the hearing. All right. Excellent. So let's talk about the other issue, which it sounds like occupied the bulk of her time, which is the issue of trial date. Uh, so for those who need the background, the, um, the president's lawyers have argued that it's impossible to set a trial date for before the election because the president's former president is running for re-election and he's going to be really busy you know, campaigning. And by the way, he can't get a fair trial while he's running for president. And by the way, Jack Smith is unconstitutionally appointed and all that jazz. Um, the government has argued that it can get a trial, all the discovery done in time for a trial in December. My own sense of SIPA is that that is not possible, um, uh, with all due respect to the government's arguments, I've never heard of a trial with significant amount of classified information going to trial in less than a year, year and a half. Uh, so talk about her questioning to both sides on this. What did, what did Judge Cannon reveal about her instincts? Let's start with the president's side. Did she seem sympathetic to the idea that we should just put the whole thing on pause until after he's had a chance to win the presidency back and get the case dismissed for himself. 
No, she didn't seem sympathetic to that view that that should be a consideration that she takes into account. You know, she repeatedly at times redirected defense attorneys to just focus on factors that uh, could justify a motion for continuance under the Speedy Trial Act. So as I said, those are things like whether or not the case will raise novel issues of law, uh, the complexity of the case, the number of defendants, things like that. So she did not kind of take the bait in terms of explicitly focusing on on Trump's uh, status as a potential presidential candidate. She, however, did seem to focus on the government's representation that this is not a complex, this should not be considered a complex case. Uh, Defense attorneys argued that this should be considered a complex case, that, um, you know, SEPA and classified information cases almost always are complex, considered complex cases by the government. Uh, Stanley Woodward mentioned that, um, you know, he had a trial in D.C. last week that involved discovery of, you know, two hours or, or something, a very short of, amount of footage from uh, video surveillance. And and it was considered by the government to be a complex case. Um, yet here there's, you know, I think the government represented that there's like a span of nine months of, of surveillance video that uh, was produced in discovery. Um, it was over a thousand hours of, of surveillance video. There is no way that a case with 31 classified documents, each with its own charge, is not going to be a, a, a complex case. I mean, is the, de- the department is really arguing that there is that this does not count as a complex case. I mean, even leaving aside that he's a former president and, you know, Mar-a-Lago and the boxes in back of me, there's a mountain of classified discovery. Right. And and that's what Judge Cannon's uh, questions focused on is, you know, asking the government if there are other similar cases that uh, DOJ has not considered complex and and you know she also focused a lot on the volume of discovery. We um, got some updates um, on disc- on what has been handed over. Um, something I will note that uh, Stanley Woodward now does counsel focused on is that the government informed the court at the start of the hearing that there was ongoing efforts to retrieve information from from Nauda's phone. According to the government, uh, they they initially had done a search of Nauda's phone in November. Um, So that's where we see some of the text messages and the indictment, um, things like that. But they had some trouble. It sounds to me as though they had some trouble recovering information from the phone and they needed to secure some a a very special type of software in order to do a forensic um, search of Nauda's phone. And according to Jay Bratt, that uh, retrieving that special software uh, took a few months. I'm not sure what kind of software would take a few months to obtain. But so it was only recently that they were able to get a forensic copy of Nauda's phone. And, and there's now, you know, efforts to produce that uh, new discovery to Nauda's defense attorneys. And 
Of course, uh, Stanley Woodward kind of used that as a reason why, you know, he would need additional time to, you know, go through all the discovery and and uh, to secure the documents that were retrieved from Nauta's phone. So the on the government side, she seems pretty skeptical. Uh, I got to say, I agree with her. I think that a December trial date is, you know, God bless uh, Jack Smith for pushing for it if he thinks he can actually do it. But I don't think it's doable. Um, when I asked Brian Greer, who's a kind of SEPA expert, about the possibility of getting this to trial before the election, he, his answer was no way. And I, I, I mean, is it fair to say she doesn't seem to have any sympathy to the, uh, with the idea that she should push this till after the election, but she also thinks that, you know, for the sake of doing so, because he's running for president, but she doesn't think the statutory fa- factors necessarily favor the government's argument either. Is that a fair summary of where she seems to be? That might be a fair summary. It, it's not entirely clear to me if she was if she was necessarily sympathetic to putting it off after the 2024 election or just wanted to set a later date than uh, the December 11th date proposed by the government. She did ask at one point about whether or not the March 2024 date set by the judge in New York in the case uh, for uh, falsification of business records and Alvin Bragg's probe, she asked whether or not that was a firm trial date and, and you know, what the expected timeline for that case would be. So, but I do think that, you know, on on the other side of things, in terms of been what the government I think would say in response to to uh, your skepticism about what is feasible here for uh, a quick turnaround, you know they tried to distinguish other cases with this case on the basis that um, in this case they were ready from day one as they described it to turn over all the discovery. Whereas in many other classified document cases, you know, it's not until the arrest that they end up uh, getting documents and and searching, you know, uh, the arrestee's property and recover evidence that then needs to be processed and and all of that. So they they kind of tried to distinguish it in, in the sense that you know this case is a little bit different because they were ready from the get go with all of the discovery that they need to turn over with the exception of Nauda's phone. Fair enough. And as I say, God bless them if they can pull it off. But it seems to me that if they haven't even started classified discovery yet, um, they don't even have a protective order in place. And we have no idea what the scope of the litigation over use of any of this material is going to be, except that there's going to be a lot of it. And by the way, there are a bunch of other motions that are going to have to hear. Just December seems awfully ambitious to me. And I, I, I'm i sure she would get a lot of criticism because of who she is if she were to say it's totally unrealistic. But I got to say, it sounds pretty reasonable to me. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work 
of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate delete me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. All right, a couple more questions, and then we got to go do the, and now for something completely different, uh, discussion with Roger about Michigan. Did she set a next hearing date? So she did not set a next hearing date. She basically just said, I will enter an order soon following this hearing. So we do not have a next hearing date. We do not have a trial date. Uh, we don't know exactly when Judge Cannon will will issue an order on this. So it is all to be determined. You know, Trump's attorneys uh, ended up kind of saying, well, why don't we just come back in November and we'll kind of figure out then where we're at. And I don't think that that's what she's going to do. I do get the sense that she's going to set at least some pretrial deadlines as to the win of it all. I I do not know. It might be a kind of middle ground between the Department of Justice's December 11th date and then the Trump team's uh, indefinite date. But one thing, Ben, that we didn't get to that I want to just mention really quickly that was interesting is that Walt Walt Nauda showed up in court. So uh, that was something that was unexpected, that he appeared alongside his attorneys. Quite obviously, uh, his co-defendant, Donald Trump, did not appear in court, but uh, just wanted to note that for for folks because it was a bit of a surprise um, to see that he um, was appearing even after Judge Cannon said that defendants do not need to appear at at these pretrial hearings. Well, if I were a defendant, I wouldn't miss my pretrial hearings. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's something that's about me. I would want to be there. Um, One last question, which is, did we learn anything about other motions outside the SEPA context and the setting of a trial date context that we're likely to get? Right. So we did learn about some anticipated motions. Uh, We learned about this in the course of this hearing because because Judge Cannon was focused on whether or not this case would raise novel questions of law and and then also, you know, what the timeline would be for any potential, you know, motions in limine or, or other mo- pretrial motions that that would be filed by defense counsel or by the. Sorry, you just you, you just used a term you're going to need to define. What is a motion in limine? A, mo- a motion in limine is just like a pretrial motion that typically relates to evidence and, you know, it's things like a motion to suppress evidence. And so in in that respect, uh, we, we do know that 
the defense counsel intends to file several motions related to uh, suppressing evidence about uh, Evan Corcoran's notes. Um, so they mentioned that, you know, that would be subject to a pretrial motion. They, in terms of other types of motions, they said uh, something about abusive grand jury process as a potential motion. They mentioned that there is policy um, under Department of Justice guidelines about, you know, whether or not you can uh, use a grand jury within the venue or kind of location where you think that you might not bring charges. So the question there is, you know, the special counsel used a D.C. grand jury for gathering much of this evidence, but then ultimately indicted in Florida. So they suggested that there you know, could be a potential motion there. They also referenced, uh, as they've they've long been uh, threatening to do, uh, is uh, question the validity of the search warrant executed at Mar-a-Lago last August. Um, and then finally, the other motion that uh, is likely forthcoming that Trump has has long raised is is the intersection of the Presidential Records Act as it relates to other criminal laws or to criminal laws regulating um, the handling of classified documents. They believe they have a novel question of law there about whether or not the PRA could allow Trump to take classified documents. Uh, so those are the uh, uh, the kind of buckets of of motions that that we will likely see that they raised. In other words, no surprises there. They didn't announce anything that we haven't, you know, anticipated in prior discussions. Right. All right. Meanwhile, in the state of Michigan, uh, we had uh, an adjacent indictment uh, that came as a bit of a surprise. Uh, we got a bit of a heads up this morning that it might be coming down the pike, but had no idea prior to today that it was happening today. Uh, Roger, what do we know about this case? What has the Attorney General of Michigan charged, and who are the defendants? The Attorney General, Dana Nessel, charged 16 individuals with uh, uh, for their role as uh, claiming to be electors, duly elected and qualified state electors for the state of Michigan in uh, December of 2020. After the election, the, in November, the Biden, Biden won the election in Michigan. He, he got uh, 2.8 million votes. Trump got 2.65 million, and there was 154,000 margin in favor of Biden. So uh, nevertheless, 16 uh, Republicans, and if you follow the Michigan procedures, it's clear that who the uh, 16 uh, electors would be, they would be the Democratic electors. And on December 14th, when those uh, electors are supposed to go to the state house and uh, cast their votes, the Democrats did that. And meanwhile, 16 of these uh, individuals gathered in the basement of the uh, Republican Party headquarters, uh, also in Lansing, I guess. Uh, Lansing's the capital. And uh, 
purported to cast their votes for Trump and signed documents saying they were duly elected and qualified electors for president and vice president of the United States uh, for state of Michigan. These documents were eventually sent to uh, the National Archives and to the U.S. Senate. Apparently, the uh, they also tried to uh, get these uh, into the uh, state house in, in Michigan, but they were uh, rebuffed. The so each each of those sixteen individuals is charged with eight counts. It's a felony. It's a uh, what we have at the moment is a fe- is a felony complaint, and I don't know technically if it would be considered sixteen felony complaints or uh, how that works. So and we have an affidavit that backs those up. And again, I don't know enough about Michigan procedure, but I assume that's sort of a placeholder and eventually we'll have an indictment. The charges, let me get you the exact charges. It's it's like forgery, conspiracy to commit forgery, a different kind of forgery, co- conspiracy to commit uttering and publishing, uttering and publishing as a substantive count, conspiracy to commit election law forgery, election law forgery as a substantive, and two, two versions of election law forgery as a substantive count. And so um, uh, the uh, attorney general gave a statement, and, uh, and of course the, uh, the affidavit supporting the complaint is, is informative as well. Their position is that... Uh, all of the, at least the claim is that all of the electoral, the legal challenges had been completed uh, by this time. They were, they had all been either dismissed or uh, adjudicated as uh, wanting. And so um, they, that's the argument for um, there being no good faith basis for uh, signing these documents at that stage. Interestingly, uh, and I gather that one of the defendants is the co-chair of the Republican Party, at least at that time, Michonne Maddock, and there's another high-level figure. I gather there were, you know, 16 original Republican electors in case Trump won, and uh, when he lost, apparently two of them refused to engage in this or two at least did not show up in that basement meeting, which is described as covert. And so they were replaced. And so the 16 involved 14 of the original electors and two additional ones. And Roger, is there anything distinctive about the Michigan fake electors case as opposed to Arizona and Georgia and you know the other states where this conduct happened such that you could say, well, you know, Michigan had this quality that makes it especially uh, prosecutable, whereas elsewhere, in addition to, of course, being under different state laws, uh, it lacked that. Is there something that made Michigan worse than Wisconsin, or is it just that there's an attorney general who cares to bring the case and presumably state law that may favor it? Well, what I do know is that from the reporting that's been done in other states, Arizona and and all of, all of the swing states, certainly there was many of the individuals who served as false electors, what are being called false electors, have said that they thought, you know, they were told 
this was a backup thing in case the litigation was successful. They had to preserve, you know, they had to do this in order to preserve the right and not be barred by by time, uh, by, uh, you know, uh, statute of limitations in effect from from uh, submitting their slate. And um, I believe there, you know, there's a precedent for that. I can't remember which election, but Democrats uh, set up alternative slate, I think, in in Hawaii. And it, while election litigation, good faith election litigation was going on. And election litigation that in 1960 in Hawaii prevailed and actually yes, yeah. switched Hawaii from Nixon's column to Kennedy's. That's right. So... Here, the claim, at least, uh, at, as as Dana Nessel puts it, and as the uh, as uh, the investigator who signed the complaints, uh, they say that all legitimate litigation was over. Uh, so that might be a distinction. The, the only other thing I'd note uh, about Michigan is that Dana Nessel was the first to go public in January of 2022 and announce that she was making a referral to the Department of Justice regarding what had occurred uh, with these false electors. And in fact, I I think two other states did so also in January of 2022. But later, uh, I don't know if that was public. And Lisa Monaco uh, of the uh, Department of Justice I don't have her title, but basically number two, uh, she was sort of put on the spot by reporters. Have you, what's going on with that referral? And she said, well, we're looking at it. And, and, and according to the Washington Post, that was a major event in terms of pushing the Department of Justice to, to yes, formally pursue the false, false electors, uh, uh, thread. And uh, I think by April, the uh, the according to the Post, the uh, FBI formally got approval to pursue that as as one of their uh, uh, threads in what we've been calling the uh, the white collar January sixth cases. So she's uh, she's been at the forefront. I don't know how much the facts in her state differ from the facts in other states. All right, we are going to go to audience questions. John Bordeaux, um, you are first in the queue. Thanks, Ben. Uh, the first question was about any kind of um, guidance on how federal and state jurisdictions coordinate or deconflict among their various indictments. Some of us lost indictment bingo this morning. Um, and likewise, are there any constraints on how much information sharing or scheduling can be shared among these different offices? Uh, deconfliction processes are pretty ad hoc. They come up in in the situation where you have multiple indictments comes up uh, frequently. Think about uh, Paul Manafort, uh, who had a charge in set of charges in uh, in the Eastern District of Virginia and in the District of Columbia. Think about Michael Avenatti, uh, who had charges on both coasts. And then in the more violent crime arenas, think about the the sharpshooter who killed the the pair who killed um, a lot of people in the D.C. area in the early aughts who had charges in the District of Columbia in Virginia and in Maryland. 
Uh, so this situation is not unusual. Um, uh, generally speaking, a good rule of thumb is that the feds will bigfoot the states and the states will usually, but not always, uh, work things out between them uh, on the basis of who filed first, whose cases are more important, uh, and whose cases kind of represent the whole. But it can be um, a, an, an issue between federal prosecutors. It can be an issue between feds and states, and it can be an, a real issue among states. Your next question, John. So Jack Teixeira is the airman who shared classified information on Discord. You can argue that he obviously disseminated the classified information, but the, the real core issue is he is under, uh, he's jailed right now, and Walt Nauta, so let's compare peer to peer. Walt Nauta is not. He's released on his own recognizance. I don't think his passport was seized. And the question is, does Jack Teixeira have a case to make that there are, I don't know, two systems of justice that he is locked up and Walt Nauta is walking around? I have thoughts on this subject, but I want you guys to go first. Roger, do you have, uh, do you have thoughts? Anna, do you have thoughts on this? Well, Walt Nauta is essentially charged with obstruction of justice. He's not really charged with willful retention even, and he's certainly not charged with distributing or, or disseminating classified information. And I just don't think uh, he's not a flight risk. He's not a, I, I don't, I don't, offhand, I, I don't see a realistic comparison. Anna? I, I, yeah, I think that I, I agree, Roger. Um, I don't have much to add there. Um, you know, there might be some things about Teixeira in terms of, you know, some of the, some of the rhetoric that it's been shown that he used and, and, you know, some of the kind of photos of, of him with a gun and that kind of thing, that maybe there could be some kind of argument that he poses more of a danger to the community than 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 Nauda or, or, or something like that. Um, but I think the main thing is is exactly what you suggested, Roger, which is that you know it's a it's a different the the nature of the crime is is very different. So yeah, Ben, you have thoughts. So over to you. Yeah, there absolutely is a two-tiered system of justice uh, on this, and I want to say there actually should be. So uh, I'm going to lean into this for a moment. As a general matter, there are, in these classified information cases that uh, involve significant volumes of highly classified information, everybody does pretrial detention except former senior officials. And Trump, uh, like David Petraeus, like John Deutsch and, and um, Sandy Berger, uh, there is this uh, former senior official exception. I think that exception is outrageous. Um, and I think that as a general matter, if everybody is considered, you know, wildly inappropriate that Edward Snowden should be walking the streets pending trial, uh, and ditto Jack Teixeira. I think, you know, Donald Trump, who had a, a similar volume of classified information, uh, is probably in the same department. That said, I do think an exception for Donald Trump makes a certain amount of sense here. You're not going to lock up the former president on a pretrial basis. You're just not going to do it. And uh, the government didn't ask for it. Uh, in fact, they 
they didn't even ask for bail. And the reason is that there's just an acceptance that this case is different. I don't think there should be, in general, a former senior official exception, but I do think acknowledging the wild incongruity, you know, the wild sense in which this case is like nothing else we've dealt with is just common sense at this point. So I, I do think there is Donald Trump is being treated differently. It's not that Teixeira is being treated differently from other people similar to him. It's that Trump is. And uh, I don't really have a problem with that. Okay, Maura Lee, uh, you have two questions. Uh, first question, I was joining this expecting to be talking purely about the target letter from Jack Smith, and then the Michigan thing turned up out of nowhere. Do any of you have any sense or speculation as to like coincidence, cooperation on behalf of the two, or like Michigan just sitting on that that elector's indictment until there was something else to kind of pick it up, or is it just is it just complete coincidence that it, they happened within you know a day of each other or whatever? What do you think, Roger? I have no idea. I uh, I vote coincidence, but I'm afraid I I just have no insight into that. What do you think, Anna? Yeah. So to start, I'll say that, you know, as I was in the hearing and then as soon as we got out, the news broke about uh, the Michigan case. So I have not yet had time. And then I ran back here to my hotel and, and um, we started this Zoom immediately. So I have not had time to review uh, in depth what's going on in Michigan I, I I will say that you know I'm I'm also voting coincidence. Uh, I think that that is not only likely but also you know would be appropriate um, for for there to not be coordination. But um, I I will say that like like I said before, you know Fonnie Willis was very public in Georgia of, you know, setting out this July 31st timeline to, you know, extending out to August 18th. So the fact that we're seeing some of these indictments coming out related to January or or potential indictments with the target letter and then indictments coming out in Michigan related to um, the fake elector plot, you know, part of it may be trying to get ahead of um, Fonnie Willis, not to say that the Michigan thing has any kind of bearing or any of the same defendants, um, but but more so, you know, just uh, trying to get ahead of, you know, the news cycle on on another prosecutor, maybe who um, uh, is going to have a, a fake elector plot as a far, as a part of their um, indictments in their state. So there might be just kind of of that deadline of July of July 31st in in these various prosecutors' minds. And so to that end, you know, maybe it's not a coincidence, um, but I don't think there's any coordination between the the federal government and, and the Michigan attorney general and 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 whatnot. Um I'm I'm with Roger on that. Yeah, just uh, a point on the law on that, you know, there uh, grand jury secrecy, I do not believe, has an exception for sharing information with state prosecutors. Somebody should correct me if I'm wrong about that. There are a number of exceptions to, to Rule 6E, but I don't think one of them is a state law enforcement exception. And so it would be a felony uh, for the feds to be 
uh, whispering in the ears of the Michigan AG on this. I think we should assume they are not engaged in felonious activity. As Anna says, that does not mean it's a coincidence. Everybody kind of has the same time frame in mind, which is if you don't do it this summer, you're going to have a hard time doing it at all. But I don't think it's an active coordination thing. Uh, your second question, sir. Um, so classified material, judge can like federal judges, I don't, I assume, do not go any through any kind of vetting from a security clearance perspective, just being appointed to the bench. Will she need one because she's going to be ruling on classified evidence? Or is there, are there provisions in CEPA to allow for that? Or does she just not get to see the evidence through because of how circuitous this whole thing is? Yeah. So Anna, do you want to take this one? Oh, yeah. Just to say, I mean, with federal judges, it's kind of uh, it's similar to members of Congress. You know, if you're a member of Congress, you don't really need security clearance. Um, uh, You uh, have it by nature of your job or not have it, but you it's it's just not a requirement. And similarly, you know, Judge Cannon um, as a federal judge is not required to have security clearance. So that's my understanding, but correct me, Roger and Ben, if, if that's wrong. Roger? That's correct. And uh, I was just going to add a, a footnote because it's sort of unbelievable in a way, but the jurors aren't going to need a security clearance. And um, uh, most of the ways of presenting classified information are going to require that the jurors see it. There are some ways to do it where the people in the media will not see all of that evidence, but the jurors are, are going to see most of it. And uh, it's really sort of incredible, but that's the way it works. If, if, if the I guess the theory is that they they wouldn't be jurors. They wouldn't be. You wouldn't get a jury of your peers. If, if each one ha- had to go through a security clearance and some were eliminated. So you just uh, alert them that they really, really mustn't uh, uh, share, the, share this information and, and you trust that everything goes okay. Yeah, the, the general rule is that if, some, if somebody's position is inherent to the Constitution and they hold that office by virtue of their constitutional status, the security clearance kind of implicitly comes with that. So the senator, the member of Congress, the juror, the judge, get access as needed. All right, Gavin, you get the last question today. It's no longer in the chat, so I can read it for him. Are the contents of the document actually at issue in the trial? Is there a reasonable argument to be made that the SEPA process can be relatively short because uh, of what the documents say is far less material than the fact that they were classified? And there's a very simple answer to that question, and it is yes, the contents of the documents are always at issue in a case like this because the defense has the ability to argue that they were not properly classified. And so in order to justify that the documents are properly classified, you have to be able to put on testimony about what the document is about. Uh, And as a defensive matter, no pun intended, you have to be able to establish uh, that uh, the defense has to be able to argue that they're not properly classified since uh, that is related to an element of the offense. And so you have to be prepared to figure out a way to discuss the documents. 
And for a primer on this subject, see the discussions on lawfare about the silent witness rule, uh, which is has a uh, lengthy explanation as to why you can't simply testify that the document was classified and that's it. Um, all right, uh, we have one last question, which I'm going to direct to Roger from Shannon, because I know Roger has very strong feelings about this. Shannon asked, does anyone think the January 6th indictment as to Trump should have come sooner? Please ask for me. I'm doing the dishes. Roger, uh, while Shannon is doing the dishes, give her your thoughts on that subject. Well, you know, it's easy for, for me to say I... I you know, I, I'm glad it it's it's coming now. As we see, uh, Trump already has a congested uh, legal calendar, and uh, it's hard to get. And I, and I agree with Anna that he seems to be rushing to get this on his calendar, but before Fannie Willis can. And I think that's a good idea. Um, but there are things about it that I haven't understood. Uh, There were good reasons to hold off. But the thing that I will never understand is uh, adopting a, uh, apparently there a lot of evidence that the DOJ adopted a ground up policy for a long time, beginning with the, you know, January 6th blue collar cases, seeing if they, they, you could eventually flip people and, and reach the higher ups. But the thing was that even before Merrick Garland took the job in, or assumed the job in March uh, of, of 2021, you know, you had that phone call from Trump to Raffensperger from uh, January 2nd or 3rd uh, of, of 2021. And everyone knew about it. And I, I just don't see how you ignore something like that. Uh, and, and not pursue it for, for a couple years. Uh, similarly, a lot of this false elector stuff was apparent from the beginning. Nara, you know, Nara was notifying state authorities. Apparently, in November, Nara uh, uh, reached out to the Arizona authorities and said, "Did you know that people are filing these false uh, elector things? Like we we got one and." Um, and and they went to the DOJ fairly early, and and they were rebuffed in in early 1991. And uh, I know there are good aspects of, of 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 why Merrick Garland didn't want to jump into an investigation of political figures in 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 a in the opposing party um, without having a ton of evidence uh, pointing to them, but. Personally, I, I think that phone call to Raffensperger was a ton of evidence that needed to be pursued. I'm not sure I disagree with Roger, uh, but I will argue the other side uh, just for the sake of, because I think I disagree with Roger uh, and because I think uh, the audience deserves the benefit of, of both sides of this argument. Look, Michigan took roughly the same amount of time to bring its single false elector case as Jack Smith has taken to bring the Trump case. Uh, it had one case. The fe- U.S. federal government has had about 1,200. Uh, Fonnie Willis, who everybody expected to be first, has 
one case, somewhere between one and 15 cases, she's taken the same two and a half years. The New York prosecutor took basically five years uh, to get the one case against Trump done. Uh, None of these organizations like the U.S. Department of Justice have had literally thousands of cases to investigate. And so my question, I am not going, they've all taken about the same amount of time. And that does suggest to me that some of these cases are just pretty hard to develop and they've just taken a while. And I think in the long run, none of us is going to spend a lot of time asking the question of whether the cases took too long. We're going to ask the questions, were the cases righteous and were the cases uh, the right ones to bring Uh, Did they go far enough or did they go too far? So I'm amenable to the possibility that Roger and a bunch of my other colleagues who feel strongly about this are right and that Merrick and Lisa and company were slow off the mark on this. My larger position is that the volume of cases that uh, the Justice Department put together has been amazingly strong. And if a few of them, including this one, took a little bit longer than maybe we would have liked, I'm not going to quibble over that. And I'm going to uh, uh, declare the prerogative of the chair and make that the last word. Anna Bauer, Roger Parloff, you're both great Americans, and thank you so much for joining us today. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is the one, the only Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Hey, folks, did you hear those questions that people in the live audience were asking? They got to ask those questions because they are material supporters of Lawfare. Only the really cool people, the material supporters, could raise their hand and ask questions in our internal Zoom where we recorded this. You could be one of those people. You go to patreon.com slash lawfare and you sign up to be a material supporter of Lawfare. If you enjoyed this episode, if you thought, hey, I want Ben to ask my question while I'm doing the dishes like Shannon did, this is your chance. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is, as always, performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.